No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Our first story reminds us that a two-week middle school love is the equivalent of several lifetimes of adoration. And when our hero's girlfriend slips him a breakup note, they all come crashing in. In celebration of 10 years of No, You Tell It, enjoy this 2013 throwback swap of You've Been Noted, written by Justin Close and performed here by Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons. You've been noted. Katie didn't break my heart. She pulverized it, smashed it to bits, crushed the metaphorical remains of my most romantic inner organ into a thin paste, spread that paste over a piece of toast and ate it for breakfast. <laughs> when I got the news that Katie wanted to end our relationship, my hands immediately began to shake. I bit my lower lip and pinched the skin of my wrist to keep from crying out loud. It was all I could do to hold myself together. Having a breakdown was not an option. Not now. Not in the middle of Mrs. Eaton's third period math class. True, Katie and I had only dated for two weeks, but in middle school... Two weeks isn't a lifetime, it's multiple lifetimes. It's meeting your schoolmate in a small farming village in Nepal, falling in love, offering her father three goats and a bucket of yak butter for her hand in marriage, raising six children, working, toiling for 40 years, dying, only to be reborn in America, recognizing those same eyes late one night in a speakeasy on the Lower East Side, working up the nerve to say hello, making a lame joke, hearing her laugh. Loving her for another 50 years and then dying, only to be reborn again, this time in the flat plains of Namibia. Mentally string enough of these lifetimes together, and you'll remember what it felt like to have a two-week relationship in middle school. <laughs> Sitting in Mrs. Eaton's third period math class, I was completely unaware that three rows behind me, Katie, beautiful, talented, intelligent Katie, was about to crush my soul. To my left, I heard a pencil hit the floor. I turned and saw my friend Sam motioning for me to bend down. I pretended to scratch a phantom itch on my ankle. What's up, I asked. He slipped a square of paper into my outstretched palm and said, this is from Katie. He didn't need to tell me who it was from. I knew a Katie note when I saw one. They always came folded in that same intricately adorable Katie way, end over end and then folded again. Each crease was pressed to perfection. The edges never frayed, the paper never crinkled. I saw my name written in the center of the square. I took a moment to admire her penmanship. Oh, how that penmanship made me swoon. My name had never looked so regal. The swoop of the J was flawlessly rendered. The U, the S, the T, the I, and the N, all printed with painstaking precision. She could have written comic strip dialogue. That's how good her handwriting was. I opened the note. Dear Justin, the letter read, I've enjoyed being your girlfriend these past two weeks. <laughs> but I think we should go back to just being friends. I hope you're not upset. You're a great person. I don't want to lose you as a friend. I'm sorry it didn't work out. I want you to know that I really do care about you. Your friend, always and forever, Katie. I spun around in my chair. Katie glanced up at me from her worksheet and her eyes met. For a brief moment, I lost myself in those big brown eyes, those almond moons. Those gorgeous sepia-toned Italian sunsets. Her lips parted and she mouthed a single word. Sorry. 
<laughs> Tears appeared and my hands began to shake. I pinched my wrist, forcing myself to focus on the pain. After summoning every ounce of willpower in my arsenal, the tears eventually slipped back into their appropriate ducts, and I was able to see again. In the time it took me to read the note, Mrs. Eaton had scrawled a problem on the blackboard. The numbers were borderline illegible. She didn't have Katie's soft touch. She lacked Katie's God-given talent. Don't think about Katie, I told myself. Concentrate on math. Math is the most important thing right now. Katie used to be the most important thing, but now math is the most important thing. Don't think about Katie. Don't think about the time you held her hand in the hallway and how amazing that made you feel. Don't think about last Friday when you almost kissed her at the skating rink but chickened out at the last second. You'll probably regret that for the rest of your life. <laughs> but that's not what matters now. Right now there's a problem on the board and you have to solve it. You have to find the value of x, divide by 4, good, now carry the 1, okay, isolate the variable and voila, x equals Katie. Katie equals X. Katie is my X! Mr. Close, I heard someone say. Yes? Mrs. E was waving a piece of chalk above her head. Would you like to come up and solve the problem for us? Oh, I, I couldn't get it. Anyone else? Erin Hicks, the class pet, jumped to her feet. Her ponytail swished from side to side as she worked. Mrs. Eaton stood off to the side and watched with pursed lips. They're very unattractive lips, now that I thought about it. Thin, cracked, and covered with a thick coating of neon pink lipstick. They look like two emaciated piglets, straining at their mother's breast. I was transfixed by the small pools of saliva gathering at the corners of her mouth. Mrs. Eaton had a fancy-sounding esophageal condition that caused her salivary glands to overproduce. She told us this the first day of class. I suffer from hyperactive salivary glands. This was her nice way of saying, I'm a spitter. <laughs> Sam threw a paperclip on the ground to get my attention. What did the note say? He asked. It's, it's over, I replied. She says she just wants to be friends. That sucks, man. Same thing happened to me last week. Liz gave me a note in study hall calling it quits. Girls fucking blow, dude. <laughs> they do fucking blow, I said. <laughs> Keeping one eye on the blackboard, Sam leaning closer. You know what we need? He whispered. What? We need some candy. <laughs> <laughs> that night, I went over to Sam's house. We sat in his room, watched Dumb and Dumber, and ate our weight in processed foods. After the movie, Sam did an amazing impression of Mrs. Eaton accidentally spitting in Aaron Hicks' eye. He made me laugh so hard I almost choked on my steak and bacon bagel bite. Wiping away tears of laughter, I leaned back in the beanbag chair and let out a deep sigh. Oh, it feels so good to laugh again. <laughs> Sam walked over to his desk and opened the top drawer. He removed a stack of paper and two pens. What's all this, I asked. We're going to write notes. To who? To Liz and Katie. What are we going to say? Whatever we want to say. I think we'll both feel a lot better once we get it all out. Sam lay sprawled on his bed, thick in hand, a determined look on his face. I stared at the blank page before me, seeking deeper into the beanbag chairs. I contemplated the depth of my sorrow. Sam reached out, pressed a few buttons on his stereo. Seconds later, R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. <laughs> we sat and listened to the song, in its entirety. Michael Stipe's delicate vocals washed over us in waves. 
You were right, Michael. I remember thinking, sometimes, sometimes everybody does hurt. As the last note rang out, Sam turned to me. Again? His eyes asked. Yes, my eyes replied. Now that the appropriate mood was set, I finally felt ready to write. Dear Katie, my note began, I have to ask you something and I want you to answer honestly. In all capital letters, I printed out the question that had been burning inside of me since third period. I even double underlined each word so as to lend the sentence extra significance. Dear Katie, my letter read, I have to ask you something and I want you to answer honestly. Why did you break up with me? Our second story takes us on the road with Shakespeare and Company's spring tour of Hamlet, where backstage Ophelia befriends the infamous skull prop to vent her frustrations, share her loneliness, and reveal her secret escapades. Switching it up, here's Alas, Poor Bob, written by Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons, hey, that's me, and performed by Justin Close. If you look up Polish composer and pianist Andrzej Tchaikovsky online, you will find something unique in his Wikipedia entry. Between life and career and bibliography, there is a section simply titled Skull. What is notable is not his actual skull, but what he wanted done with it after he died. In 1982, at the age of 46, Tchaikovsky died of colon cancer and left his body to medical research, but he requested his skull be donated to the Royal Shakespeare Company. It was the pianist's final wish that it be used as a prop, specifically as Yorick's skull, in future productions of Hamlet. In 2008, David Tennant, a Scottish actor famous to me for being the reason my friend keeps begging me to watch Doctor Who, <laughs> held Tchaikovsky's skull in the RSC's critically acclaimed Hamlet performed at Stratford-upon-Avon. I don't know what prompted a number of my friends to post an article about Tchaikovsky's skull on Facebook recently, commenting on how awesome the story was and showing off by out Shakespeare quoting each other. When I read it, hunched over my keyboard, my iced coffee making condensation rings on the manuscript I was supposed to be reviewing, I thought about how, once upon a time, my daily routine included packing a human skull in and out of a small traveling box. I had first gone to Shakespeare and Company, a theater company located in western Massachusetts <coughs> nestled in the lush Berkshires, for a summer internship, and never left. A buffer between college and what the hell am I supposed to do now, my immediately life plan was to hide out in the woods at Shakespeare camp for as long as possible, <laughs> freeing my natural voice and rolling down my spine. So when Kevin Coleman, a former Jesuit priest who found an even higher calling running Shake and Co's education program and my newfound spiritual leader, pulled me aside and invited me to join the 2000 Spring Two of Hamlet as a feeling, it was a true princess moment a would-be princess who goes crazy and drowns herself, but I was good with that. <laughs> I'd always thought of Ophelia as the pale, blue-eyed, wispy girl with the blonde ringlets depicted on the cover of my high school copy of Hamlet. I was not that girl. In fact, not only was I taller than the guy Kevin cast as Hamlet, but I'm pretty sure I outweighed him by a lot. The spring tour was comprised of seven of us, traveling to schools all over New England, performing a 90-minute version of Hamlet and doing workshops and performance with the kids. If you ever want to experience true tragedy, wake up at 5 a.m. on a March morning in New England, 
force yourself into a freezing van with six other cold and crabby people, unload and assemble a complete theater set comprised mainly of heavy wooded arches, and perform Hamlet at 9 a.m. <laughs> for a group of equally crabby middle schoolers in a Catholic gymatorium. <laughs> at 22, I believed good acting meant emotionally browbeating myself into crying my eyes out as Ophelia. As you can imagine, I was a delight to tour with. <laughs> we were also our own running crew, and my job was props. Repurposing any flat surface into a makeshift props table, I would lay out Claudius and Gertrude's golden goblets and the poison pearl. Stay, give me drink. Hamlet, this pearl is thine. God, how I detested that stupid single pearl. The little bugger was forever rolling under things. <laughs> there was also Hamlet and Laertes rapiers, the grave digger's shovel, and snugly packed in a small square padded box, a real human skull. Your skull. Each day, I pulled the skull out and then packed it away again. With no jawbone, its one long, jagged front tooth made creepy little grooves in the foam padding, as if it was trying to chew its way out. <laughs> one morning, when big, deep traffic made us all late to a school, I was rushing around backstage, frantically setting up the props and quickly jabbing two fingers into its eye sockets. I plucked the skull out of its travel box like a bony bowling ball. Then I stopped, horrified. He was, after all, a person once. Alas, poor Bob! I never knew him, Horatio. That's when I named the skull Bob. He wasn't Yorick. He may not have even been a he, but from that moment on to me, he was Bob. No one knew why Kevin owned a real human skull or where it had come from. I can't imagine Bob's final wish was for a skull to be used as a prop for an educational tour of Hamlet. Where instead of being held by a cool Dr. Who Hamlet, Bob's Moby Dane was a scrawny guy with cirrhosis <laughs> who had smoker's breath and butchered his lines. No matter what's the mother? <laughs> no. No, chin up, Bob, I joked. At least you don't have to kiss him. Then again, you can't smell anything anymore, can you? Lucky. That's when I started talking to Bob. <laughs> Sleep-deprived and worn down by unending puerile demands of six very dramatic people, it was comforting to hang out backstage with Bob. I'd sit there, perfectly regal in my soft baby blue dress, with white-capped sleeves and two flowing veils that clipped on my back like gossamer wings, waiting to go mad as Ophelia. No matter how tiring the tour got, when I put that dress on, I was transformed. I was that girl. My Ophelia transformation came complete with a special kind of crazy as I vented my daily sufferings to the one soul who I knew would listen. Hamlet totally threw me under the bus during the nunnery scene. <laughs> Again. How <laughs> <laughs> the hell can I get thee to a nunnery if he never says the goddamn lie? <laughs> Bob agreed that it was totally unacceptable. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, I adore Claudius, but he keeps checking out my ass when he's zipping up my dress and he creeps me out. Today! He requested, I wear thongs more often. Really? <laughs> Aided by a few quick flicks of my wrist, Bob shook his head, disbelief. <laughs> I swear, Gertrude likes making, making us wait for her. I mean, would it kill her to do a courtesy job when she can clearly see the rest of us are already in the van? 
Speaking of that, Layer Cheese keeps ragging me for always falling asleep when we're on the road. What are you, like, narcoleptic or something? No, maybe I just need a break from your stupid face! <laughs> I wasn't crazy enough to think his skull would smile, but you know how sometimes a dog looks like he's smiling when he's really just a dog? <laughs> I'm telling you, if Horatio makes us eat it fucking friendlies one more time, I'm going to punch him in the throat! Why does he always get to pick anyway? How's that fair? Bob didn't think it was fair at all. We bonded over Bob's big scene. After Hamlet held him up as Yorick's skull, to what base uses we may return, Horatio, I would enter, shrouded in a sheet as my own corpse, leading Ophelia's funeral procession. Snow blind under the white shroud, I'd awkwardly grope around for the bench where I was supposed to lay down, dead. Then Hamlet would come over to my body and with one final bad breath kiss, <laughs> place his hand lovingly on my forehead. When Laertes entered Hamlet, forgetting I was a living person under the sheet and not just the bench, would boost himself up off my head <laughs> as if my skull was simply another piece of scenery. I think nothing, my lord. Eventually, I told Hamlet to quit boosting off my head, and he apologized, completely unaware he was doing it, and promised he'd stop. He didn't. Being on tour with six other people and only a skull to confide in is incredibly lonely. About halfway through the run, we spent a long, snowy weekend back in the Berkshires. The company house where I was staying had been so full of life during the summer season, but now it was just me, our stage manager slash Rosencrantz slash Gravedigger, and some mice. Saturday night, I paced the creaky floorboards of my bedroom bored. I wanted to go out, but had no desire to see anyone else from the tour. Growing increasingly reckless in the dark, drafty house, I tossed my closet and unearthed a green, crushed velvet dress a summer actress gave me before she left. It was a little small, the full-length skirt hitting me at about mid-calf, but would have to do. Wriggling into some tights, I flicked back my short hair and, rooting through the house's abandoned bedrooms, found a shade of lipstick a little sultrier than what I'd been wearing as Ophelia. Looking in the mirror, I wasn't royalty, but I was transformed. I left the house at around 10 o'clock, which in the Berkshires is more like 2 a.m., and uh, drove to the one place I knew would be open, a fancy wine bar named Zinc. Outside, the deserted, snow-covered streets of the small New England town were straight out of a Stephen King novel. Inside, it was New York City. Zinc was packed with the ritzy revelry of out-of-towners on ski vacations. What was I doing here, alone in this ill-fitting hippie dress? I was here to pick someone up. Sitting at the end of the bar, slowly nursing glass after glass of red wine, I had no idea how to do that. I'd never been in a bar by myself before and feeling increasingly stupid, I decided to go. Then, Jonah sat down on the stool next to me. You aren't leaving, are you? He said. I finished my drink, I replied. Queen of the obvious, I motioned to my empty wine glass. Jonah nodded at the bartender and he immediately refilled my glass. Picking up Jonah was tumbling down a padded well. All bumps were softened, but fall was dizzier. A short guy in his early twenties with freckles and a shock of curly red hair, he was Zinc's sous chef and reeked to the pot he smoked to take the edge off the night. When we got to his apartment, conveniently located within walking distance of the bar, I was surprised by how cozy it was inside. An explosion of throw pillows and scented candles. Then he explained he was subletting from a friend's girlfriend. Undressing the moment we got in the door, Jonas stood before me in his orangey long johns and wild red hair. Instead of a prince, I bagged a 
horny Rumpelstiltskin. When <laughs> <laughs> he stripped off his long johns, dancing a quick jig, I laughed. When he pushed me down on the big marshmallow bed covered in poofy pillows, I sold out true desire for momentary comfort. When he yanked the green velvet dress up over my head, I marveled at how easily I had accomplished my goal. I was this girl, too. Let him the maid without a maid never departed more. Still, I slept soundly, warmer than I'd been in weeks. I went to Jonah's a few more times whenever we were back in the Berkshires. He'd call me late after his shift and invite me over. One night he asked me for a favor. Could you pick up some cigarettes on your way? Oh, and, and grab some condoms too. I'll pay you back. He didn't. When I walked in, he grabbed the bag out of my hand and pulled me down to kiss him. Thank God you're here, he mumbled between kisses. My buddy gave me some Viagra, you know, just to try, and I took it before I thought to check if you were around. Not wanting to think about what he would have done if I hadn't been there, I fished the condoms out of the bag and steered Jonah towards what I was really there for, the marshmallow bed. Afterwards, I burrowed under a pile of pillows, but Jonah stretched out a naked, happy Rumpelstiltskin and dreamily muttered, You should take a trip. Go to New York City for the weekend. We get, like, Cheap hotel and lay in bed all day and cheese and crackers. What do you think of that? I wasn't sure what anyone would think of that, so I answered, Sure, sounds nice. When I woke up in the middle of the night, Jonah's face was pressed close to mine, his smoky breath making my eyes water. Mouth hanging open, one long, jagged front tooth glinted at me from inside a skull that might as well be hollow. In his sleep, Jonah had scratched at a scabbed over zit on his face. Staring at the blob of blood welling up on his cheek, I knew with a cold certainty I was never going to come here again. I never did. We went back on the road for three weeks, and I used that as an excuse to fade away and never return Jonah's messages. I never mentioned my few night stand with Zink's sous chef to my torments. In fact, I never told anyone else about the night I picked up Jonah except Bob, and I never told anyone about Bob except you. According to Wikipedia, after the use of Tchaikovsky's skull was revealed in the press, RSC's Hamlet transferred to the West End, where it was announced that his skull would no longer be used since it was too distracting for the audience. However, this was a deception. In fact, his skull was used throughout the production's West End run, and in a subsequent television adaptation. Director Gregory Duran said, Andrei Tchaikovsky's skull was a very important part of our production of Hamlet. And despite all the hype about it, he meant a great deal to the company. Ditto, Bob, whoever you are. Ditto. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.